Good morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are, if you've never been in a service where we started in a, a new book, it is the rare occasion in which you will see a PowerPoint from me. Um, I talked to Matt yesterday about whether or not we should purchase a PowerPoint for our church computer. And he said, well, how often will you use it? I said, well, I'll use it every time we begin a new book. And he said, so once a year? I said, that's funny, Matt. And so uh, he might be right. Uh, But when we start a new book, I tried to give some history of that book, uh, be it brief, because I know not everyone is a history buff. But we are going to do a brief amount of history, uh, and then we'll launch into the first nine verses. So... Let's talk about the city of Corinth. And so I think we have some pictures up here, I believe. Uh, So, as you well know, uh, this is going to be a complete walkthrough through the book of Corinthians, what we're calling for the glory of God alone. And so let's talk a little bit about the historical background of this book. One is we know that Paul's the author that's been universally accepted since the first century of the church, not uh, any uh, serious debate about that. Uh, it was written about the mid ni- uh, mid fifties. Uh, that's not the nineteen fifties, in case you're wondering. Uh, it's the mid fifties. It was most likely written while Paul was in Ephesus. Uh, most argue for that in his third missionary journey. And many New Testament scholars make the case that this was Paul's fourth letter uh, after Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, The last little spot gets kind of interesting if you get into this and studying it. Uh, There are possibly five letters that Paul sent to Corinth. Uh, There seems to be more support for four, with two of those letters being lost. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5.9, reference one of the letters. Some argue that 2 Corinthians is actually a combination of these supposedly lost letters, uh, and they form one letter. Our next slide Well, a little bit of a map for us to understand where Corinth is. Uh, You can see it uh, near uh, Greece, um, and you see where Ephesus is and the other ones. And then we have these pictures of Corinth today. Uh, Corinth still has a modern city located just a few miles from where the ancient city uh, is and where it was. Uh, And so I want to see, while those are up, I'll give you a little bit of background. You can have those pictures for thoughts, or uh, you can daydream and ignore this part of it, um, but whatever the case, gave you something to look at. The city of Corinth was located in southern Greece in what was the Roman province of uh, Achaia, 40 miles or about 45 miles west of Athens. Uh, the lower part, these are big words for me, which for me is uh, anything with more than five letters and two syllables, but uh, uh, Pella. Ponitius uh, is, con- is uh, connected to the rest of Greece by a four-mile-wide isthmus, uh, which is a narrow piece of land, which is bounded on the east by the Saronic Gulf and on the west by the Gulf of Corinth. Corinth is near the middle of this isthmus, situated on a very high plateau, and for many centuries, all north and south land traffic in that area had to pass very near or through this ancient city. And the reason was that travel by sea around the Peloponnesus 
involved a 250-mile voyage that was considered very dangerous at that time and time-consuming, still not really uh, safe to this day. And so they came up with another idea. What they decided to do was they created a land contraption uh, and moved their ships out of the water onto this contraption, kind of like a railway almost, and they would roll these ships four miles down the land to the other side of the Gulf. Uh, It made a lot of sense, saved them a tremendous amount of time, and kept them from sinking uh, in some of the rougher water. Uh, It was a pretty nifty idea for sure. Uh, A canal uh, was attempted several times, so they wouldn't have to do this anymore, but they eventually completed one uh, not until 1893 before they actually completed that. So it's been a while, and the ships to this day move through that canal. Um, So the idea of moving ships for all the trade of the world at that time, just picture that. Uh, The city was about the size of Longview, about 90,000 people. But imagine the amount of people and volume of product that came right through Corinth. It created Corinth as a major trade city, not only for most of Greece, but for much of the Mediterranean area, including North Africa, Italy, and Asia Minor. So you can just picture that in your mind. Imagine that the U.S. was divided in half, and the only way you could connect to it was a very through a little bitty piece of land, and Longview was on that little piece of land, and we were the only city there. And everything that crossed came through the Longview area. That's kind of what Corinth was. And so there were all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life who moved in and out of the city of Corinth. Now, if you're a church planner, that's a great place to plant a church because of the impact that you can have in people's lives that could spread the gospel to other parts of the world. Corinth was also popular for another reason, uh, because of the Ismenian Games, uh, one of the two most famous athletic events of that day, the other being the Olympian Games. But these were hosted by Corinth, and that generated even more traffic into the city. It must have been a pretty nice city in some ways because if you were a Roman soldier and you had served Rome and you retired, this was one of the most popular retirement places for Roman soldiers. And so it became a Roman colony. Uh, and It was, a, by, by and large, a copy of Rome and its architecture and culture. It eventually became the administrative center of the Roman province of Achaia, that wasn't until 27 B.C. It eventually became an imperial province in A.D. 15. Corinth was incredibly morally corrupt. So much so that the phrase to Corinthianize or to just say you're acting like a Corinthian was almost synonymous with gross immorality. Even the pagans thought that the Corinthians took things too far. <laughs> Even they were like, oh, that's, that's bad when they spoke about the Corinthians. And that was especially in the area of sexual immorality. The most prominent temple in the city was one to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and some 1,000 priestess who were religious prostitutes lived and worked there and came down into the city in the evening to offer their services to the male citizens and the tremendous amount of foreign visitors who would come through the city. 
And although that temple was destroyed before Paul's arrival in Corinth, and we do know it was rebuilt to some fashion, as it appears on Roman coins from that time period. However, uh, whether or not that prostitution continued is not known for sure. Uh, but there was, without a doubt, uh, it had a tremendous influence on the society as it continued. And that is the city of Corinth that Paul arrives in in Acts 18 and plants a church. He preaches in it for one and a half years before moving on to plant other churches. And then at some point is told of the church's struggles, and he pins this letter to him, which uh, most likely uh, is actually his second letter to him, as the first letter is lost. So, those of you who don't like history, you can breathe, because we're done. Are you good? So let's dive into the Corinthians letter, and let's learn much. I'm going to tell you at the outset now, as your pastor, uh, this will be the most challenging book to us theologically. Like, I just want you to know that there's multiple camps sitting in this room right now. Like, I can see you, <laughs> and I know where many of you are, and this book is going to rake all of our camps. And I'm going to land somewhere, and somebody is not going to be happy with where I landed. And so here's what I want to just tell you. I want you to understand that, that some of this is going to be primary teaching, some of it will be secondary doctrines, and some of it will be tertiary doctrines. And here's all I want to tell you. I'm, I'm going to show from the Scripture where I land and why. And if you disagree, guess what? Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> Lots of people have disagreed. The only thing I ask is that you disagree, not based on what your pastor told you previously, or you disagree based on what your mom and dad told you, or you disagree based upon what denomination you attended, but that you disagree because you've studied the Scriptures. Then disagree. But let's quit disagreeing because we quote somebody else. Let's quote the Scriptures. And if you come to me and say, well, I disagree, and here's my biblical evidence, and I say, well, here's why I said what I said, here's my biblical evidence, and you say, well, we don't agree, well, great, we can still hang out and love Jesus together. So let's make sure that we do that. Somebody will be mad before the end of this sermon, <laughs> I guarantee you. That's okay. It's okay. A second reminder is this is a letter to believers in Corinth. Paul is speaking to those who claim Christ. It's important to understand that. So his, his teaching of their struggles is struggles of believers. So, let's launch into the first nine verses. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 
so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we need help. Boy, do we need help, Lord. Teach us your word, Lord. Shake our chains of our denominations. Shake the chains of how we were brought up. Shake the chains of our opinions. And teach us your word, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me give you a couple more slides that we have. Uh, I think it's right after the picture of the ruins. Um, and I'll give you a couple of things in reference that we're going to have to tackle in these first nine verses. So it'll be the slide right after the, after the ruins. Why did Paul write to this church? Why did he write? Why did he start here? Well, the church was struggling with strong division, leadership issues, theological debates, and serious sin. Paul was given this information because you have to know if he wrote this letter, if he's going to address problems, how did he find out about it? There was no telephone, no email. How did he find out about it? Well, we know this information was passed on to him by Chloe's people. We see that in chapter 1, verse 11. A letter from the church itself asking questions. We see that in chapter 7, 1 and uh, 7, verse 1 and verse 25 and other places. And a personal visit by some of the church members who may have very well brought the letter with the questions. And we see that in chapter 16, verse 17. Why some of these matters were not handled or taught by Paul while he was there is the subject of some debate. Like he was there for a year and a half, and yet the questions they're asking, it appears, or though it seems in the text, that they have not been addressed before. That's interesting to me. Why did he not cover it in a year and a half? Maybe he did cover it, and they have rebelled against it. It just seems like that some of them he's kind of teaching for the first time. The next slide. What were some of their issues? Well, there was divisions and quarreling within the church. Uh, Baptist, I'm sure. Uh, leadership issues and authority. Baptist. Uh, shocking. We'll just stop there. I won't say Baptist anymore for the rest of them. <laughs> shocking sexual sin. Lawsuits among believers, marriage and divorce, drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, the role of women in the church, freedom and responsibility in Christ, the misuse of the spiritual gifts, idolatry, and as one commentator put it, an unwillingness to divorce the culture around them created rampant problems for the Corinthian church. Does this church sound familiar? How many of y'all grew up in a church somewhat like that? I'm putting my hand up. So that's what we're dealing with when it comes to this passage. So let's just have a few thoughts about the first few verses, and then we'll uh, try to complete it uh, before 1 o'clock. I like the opening. He talks about our brother Sosthenes, probably the same guy in Acts 18. Maybe, possibly, but I lean that way. Uh, wouldn't that be cool? He opposed Paul in 18, and now he appears to be a believer. I think that's interesting. We don't have proof of that, but, but I kind of lean that way. And then in verse 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting there that Paul emphasizes that these believers are called to be together. That they're called to be together. Christianity is not something you take up as a hobby. Much better hobbies. And it's not something you take up alone. Walk the Christian faith alone and you'll be destroyed. And Paul says you're called to be together and and there's a collective element is in view here. A reminder that not only are they to be together, but a reminder that there are others. There are others around the world who claim Christ and they are joined with them in all the places who call upon the name of Jesus. Let me read verses 4 through 9 again. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. (laughs) Now some of you are looking for something really, really deep here. I need you to come back to the service, because sometimes the deepest things of Scripture are right there in plain view. I mean, do you see it? Is anyone else amazed here? You may not be amazed at what I have been amazed at when I opened up 1 Corinthians and started studying it several weeks ago. Are you you amazed at verse 4? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul gives thanks for what? For the Corinthians. For them. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Sexual immorality in the church. A failure by the church to address it. You got people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're suing each other. The gifts are being misused. All kinds of division and quarreling about who should be leading the church. (laughs) A church that Paul planted and that he poured his heart into for 18 months. And this is what you morons have gotten out of it? Here's how my letter would have been penned. I don't know about your letter. Here's how my letter would have been penned. Dear morons in Corinth, you are all a bunch of losers, pathetic sinners who clearly have no understanding of holiness. Please, please close down the church. 
pull the plug, quit representing our Savior. Don't tell them I planted you. Just stop and go back to your miserable and ungrateful, worthless lives. This is my last letter to you. Please do not send me another letter because I ain't reading it. That's what I would have said, right? But that's not what Paul says. And none of us sweat or bled for that church. Paul did. And the information that he gets about what's going on in the church, he opens his letter up with that. I'm thankful for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And that's enough to make me say, what, what is Paul drinking? But he goes on. And he tells the same group of people, you have all been enriched in all speech and knowledge. Right, Paul, they're doing a great job. You're not lacking any gift. God will sustain you to the end guiltless. And you have been called into the fellowship of his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. If I had written, okay, let's just say that I was holy enough and, and good enough as a pastor to write that, I would have put an asterisk right there. And then I would have said, this does not apply to all the people who are in sexual immorality, who are getting, I would have listed all the other sins. This is only for those who are getting it right. You know, that's not where Paul starts. These people can't get along with each other, and they are failing at just about everything, struggling with sexual morality, don't know what to do about it. They're arguing about who should be in charge of the church that Paul planted. Some, this church will eventually question Paul's authority. And when they have time for the Lord's Supper, they got people who can't quit drinking the wine. And they get drunk Paul, you're thankful for them? How could Paul possibly be thankful for such a miserable group of people who are messing up all of Christianity? Grace provided in the cross because of Jesus. And he says, here's the gospel. Despite all your failures, because of Christ having no failure, you will be held guiltless. No amens from the church just then. Guiltless. The unmerited favor of God placed upon the believers in the church in Corinth. And Paul begins this letter, despite all of their faults, with grace. He reminds them they are called to be together. He reminds them to be called together with other believers and that grace has been extended to them by God through Christ Jesus. He begins with grace. And all of us who grew up in the church right now, especially those of you who are very good biblically, you're like, holiness! Are we not? Aren't we yelling that right now? Holiness, holiness, holiness. You forgot I would have given them a book on holiness. And Paul begins 
with grace. Now listen, this is not a clever tactic by Paul. This is not like your boss. You had a supervisor come to you. Well, it's talking about something you're not doing well. And he's like, so I just appreciate how you're always here on time. You do such a good job with punctuality. I mean, but you don't do anything once you get here. I mean, there, that's, not what, that's not what's going on here. He's not setting them up. Paul believes this. Paul is thankful for these Corinthians. We could use a cup of this in our churches today. We could use this. Several years ago, many years ago now, a pastor friend of mine had a ministry in the Austin area. I'm going to be careful here because of the crowd that we have today. The age appropriate. It was a, a ministry to certain kinds of nightclubs. And one of the women who performed in one of these nightclubs was led to Christ by their ministry team. She had no connection to the church, had never been to a church, didn't grow up in a church, didn't grow up in a family, in a church, and they invited her to church. She, she professed Christ, and she said, I'll be there. One of my buddies, whose dad was the pastor of that church at that time, said, when she came into the church, it was a little bit of a stirring. Because her best outfit that she could find to wear to the church was one that would be deemed less than appropriate. And there was a stirring among the people. And he said his pastor's wife took her to the side, explained some things to her, loved on her, cared about her, and began to explain more things. In that process, she offered up, hey, I don't know what I'm really doing, but I've told my boss I will no longer perform on Sundays. Book me only Monday through Saturday. <laughs> and most of us in our theological camps would crush her. We would crush her. Give her a whole bunch of books on holiness. And we would miss the grace of God that is stirring in her life. How, does it, how much gumption does it take for a woman who has never been in the church in her entire life? Imagine all the images she has about church people to go to a place she's never been to, to people that she does not know. The grace of God working in her life. Apollos had to have things explained to him. Why wouldn't she have to have things Explain to them. And I know what you're thinking. You got to be careful, Jason. Thinking like that about grace. What about holiness? What about taking sin seriously? What about calling people to live out their faith in actions? And I absolutely agree, and so does Paul. He will spend much of the rest of this letter teaching and telling those involved in simple, simple behaviors to stop. He will remind them of holiness and he will advise them of the possible consequences for refusing to divorce themselves from their old lives that should be behind them. That's not how he starts. He starts with grace. He starts with reminding them of who they already are in Christ. Why does Paul do this? 
Well, I can't help but think that Paul doesn't have some reflection when he eventually writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy. I know that scares you, that you might not even want to turn there after as long as we spent there. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12 through 16, Paul said this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's Paul's thought about himself. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe or who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul remembers where he came from. Paul said, let me tell you something. I don't care what you've done. I'm the chief of sinners. I didn't just not follow Jesus. I persecuted those who did. And he rescued me. And he can rescue you. Paul goes in later when he writes Romans and he says in Romans 7, verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do want is what I keep on doing. Anybody familiar yet? <laughs> Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? glad he didn't end there. He said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul gets the struggle. He knows where he came from and he knows the battle that exists now. He knows of failure and he knows of grace. I want to go on and on, but I know I'm pressed for time, but I'll sum it up like this. Isn't it interesting that those of us who have received unmerited, unearned favor from God through Christ Jesus are usually the ones who are first not to give it to anybody else. Have we forgotten who we are without Christ? Were you better than the girl at the club? Was your sin not as bad? Paul knew better. I'm the chief one. In Corinthians, I get the struggle. So I'm going to begin with grace. And I'm going to remind you of who you are in Christ. That you have been given everything you need. And that in Christ and in Christ alone, you're guiltless. And now I'm going to spend the rest of this letter telling you how to walk out that life. 
I'm actually going to teach you and not just expect you. Grace-centered discipleship. We know that in all in here, all of us in here who are believers vary on their maturity in Christ. We desire to do what is godly, but we fail often. Now listen, we don't stay there. We continue to get up and press on, but let us not all forget of the journey that we are all on. And I don't know if you know this, but it's a very difficult journey. Any of you there? Grace doesn't exist in believers to excuse our sinful nature. It exists, Romans 2.4, to help us overcome our sinful nature. But let's, let's not be dishonest. That's a messy journey for all of us, is it not? So as a young church, not as young as we used to be, <laughs> but as a young church, my hope is that we will strive for godliness. But we will give grace to those who are not quite there. Because neither are you. So the next time someone fails you miserably, sometimes our own family, when you or other people disappoint you, can you still look for the grace in their lives. It's almost like teaching your children how to drive. My wife has had the brunt of that, although I've helped a little bit. With Daniel and Andrew, both my boys have driver's licenses now. When you're on the other side of the car, my driving instructor had a brake on his side of the car. Do any of y'all have that? Like, I'm stomping on the ground and nothing's happening. I'm like, hey, there's a red light. Red light, red light, red light, red light. If you're taking this corner, you're going to hit the cow. Oh, I told you you're going to hit the curve. And they passed their driving test. <laughs> How do we treat other people? How do we treat people in this journey? Are we exhibiting the grace to them? I'm not talking about excusing sin. I'm talking about understanding why and how they sin, just like you do. May we be a church that doesn't leave people in their sin, but walks with people as they journey out of sin. If you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, that's all good and well. I get it, Jason. Paul begins this letter with grace. And let me add, he ends this letter with grace too, by the way, chapter 16. He ends it with the same thing. So I don't completely understand what you mean by this grace offered in the gospel. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Here's the gospel. You were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. I know we do it every week, and we will do it every week as long as I preach. You were born into sin. No one has to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally. And that sin separated you from a holy God. And even in your sin and even in your rebellion to that God, that God loved you. Boy, we've gone to church too much. 
even in your sin, while rebelling against him, he loved you. And he sent his only son to take your punishment on the cross. That for those who put their faith in that and repent of their sins, that they can be brought back into a right relationship with that father. People say, well, how do I do that? What, 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 what do I need to say? What, what's the formula? What, what, what do I have to do? Whose hand do I have to take? Do what the Bible says time and time and time again. Repent and believe. Well, how do we know that you're a believer? Because your life will never be the same again. You're still going to struggle but may we listen, listen, church. One of the ways that our lives as believers is never, different, is never the same again. Are you ready? Here's one of the ways that we look at people who are further back on the maturity trail with Christ and we extend grace. That's one of the ways our life should be different. And our church be that kind of church. For the believers in here, let me finish with this. I want to say to you as your pastor, one of your pastors, your, I guess, main preaching pastor, however we say that nowadays. I am thankful for you and all of your messiness. I am thankful for you and all of your failures and all of your faults and all of your theological differences and all of your personality issues, all of your struggles. I am thankful for you because guess what? I'm right there with you. You are not alone. I'm on the same journey. And may we as a church embrace together the journey towards holiness, powered by the Holy Spirit who resides in us by the grace of God through Christ. May we therefore be patient, gracious, and loving towards one another until we all see him face to face. Won't that be a good day? Won't that be a good day? Keith's going to come. I'm going to pray for us to spend some time worshiping this God. Reflect on how you have extended grace. Maybe you need help there. I'm sure we all do. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have been so gracious to us. God, so gracious. And Lord, sometimes we abuse that grace. Most often we forget about that grace. I pray, Lord, that our church, this church, this group of believers would be the most serious group about holiness that we can be and be very quick to extend grace. Remind us of who we were before you placed your favor upon us. And may we be reminded of the struggle and how others struggle the same way. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for grace. Thank you that your spirit continues to grow us. Help us to pursue you with all of our strength and to run the race and untangle ourselves from the sins and the burdens and the weights and the struggles that seem to easily entangle us. Help us run, Lord. We need your strength. We need your direction. We need your power. We need your mercy. And Lord God, we need each other. 
teach us to love one another well. It's your name we pray. Amen.